Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Many critics consider the five seasons of The Wire to be one of the greatest drama series in television history. And tonight on The Big Interview, its creator, David Simon, opens up about the stories he's driven to tell. If you believe that profit is the functional metric for how to measure the health of your society, then you're gonna get the society that we're building now, God help us. And his critical assessment of America's war on drugs makes him one of the most provocative voices in television. Drug war is just a way to monetize the poor. You know, I mean, if we said let's kill the poor, we'd be more honest about what, what we've been engaged in for the last 30 years. Reporter, writer, producer, social critic, David Simon, tonight on The Big Interview. Can't be playing no checkers on no chessboard, right. yo. All right, all right, all right, man. Now look, check it. It's simple. It's simple. See this? This the kingpin. All right? And he the man. You get the other dude's king, you got the game. When The Wire premiered on HBO in 2002, it was unlike anything else on television. Gritty focused on an America rarely seen in prime time, and there were few, if any, Hollywood endings. Why'd you let him play? God, this America, man. The story was about life in inner-city Baltimore. Drugs, law enforcement, corruption, failing education, and many of its characters were based on real people. We really wanted to show all the jurors that you left our little interrogation here without any more scuff marks than what you brought in. Fuck you, fat man. Oh. <laughs> Fuck you, fat man. Fuck you, fat I thought we were friends. The show's creator, David Simon, got his start as a crime reporter covering the war on drugs for the Baltimore Sun. And what he saw became the inspiration for two books. That led to the critically acclaimed NBC drama, Homicide. This is Detective Bayless. He lives over on Eagle Street, right next to the gas chamber. An Emmy Award-winning HBO miniseries called The Corner. Little man on a big corner, huh? No, I was just passing through. Just passing through. And Simon's most famous creation, The Wire. Let me ask, and I want everybody to write this down. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? How many wrote down dead? Shit, you saw that coming, huh? <laughs> Shame y'all have so little time and you're wasting it here with us. Today, Simon is considered one of the most outspoken critics of American society. Somebody someplace called you the angriest man in America. Do I seem angry to you? No. <laughs> I know who called me that. Uh, it was the Atlantic Magazine, and, yeah. and I actually embraced it because it's actually a very good, uh, it's a very good moniker when you're going into um, meetings in L.A. to try to get television shows made. You know, watch out, this guy's the angriest guy in Hollywood. You know, <laughs> better not tell him he's canceled. You know, um, I think if you try to discuss politics and you, and you are interested in argument, and I'm very interested in argument. I think argument is. Um, is uh, I think it's the reason I got into journalism, and I think it's the reason I found it fascinating. And I was raised on argument in my in my household, um, not in a bad way, but in a, in a in a in an academic way. You and I come from newsrooms. We put our feet up on the desk and argue about everything all the time. Oh, that's that's what it's about. That's you know, when I, I got into journalism, I knew I wasn't going to get paid well, <laughs> and I knew I wasn't going to um, 
there were certain things that were closing off to me. I was never going to, you know, have time to read Cervantes or go to law school. There were a lot of things I was saying no to when I decided I wanted to be a reporter. But one thing I did think I got to do was uh, hang around the newsroom and argue about the day's events with other people who were interested. So I come from that culture. So the idea of uh, uh, embracing argument and, and, and provoking it even, uh, being a, a, a function of, you know, I may be a crank for a lot of reasons, but it's, you know, angry is probably not the thing that I, that I, f I feel when I'm engaged. I just gave a speech in Australia about capitalism, socialism, and how I think they need to be wedded. And I was speaking in a normal tone of voice, and I spoke for 25 minutes. And today I looked on the Huffington Post, and it says, epic rant. I'm thinking, you know, I didn't even get, I didn't even get warmed up. Epic rant? Epic? 25 minutes? Rant? You know, I don't think I raised my voice once. Um, I, the, the cartoon version of me is, is way more fascinating to me than the actual. You know, I'm like, who is that guy? Well, if you have to go out shooting something down, being an angry person about the right things wouldn't be the worst epitaph. Yeah. I hope it's the right things. All right, man, what you got? We found this wallet on him. His name's Keith Becker. Mr. Becker ducked, but he didn't duck good enough. The first time American television viewers heard David Simon's personal take on America was in 1993, when NBC premiered the procedural police drama, Homicide, Life on the Street. So the state's attorney's gonna bargain it down to five years, the kid's gonna do a third of that, and you think he didn't have a chance. Listen, I just wanna know what an innocent man would do with the same chance. What, what is that, what is that, what is that? Is that a line from your textbook, rookie? Stay out of my face. That show, which won both Emmys and Peabody Awards, was based on one of Simon's books. He wrote and produced for the series under the guidance of his mentor, famed television writer and one of Homicide's executive producers, Tom Fontana. What is your favorite scene from Homicide and why? <laughs> um, I think the first script I wrote ever um, for Tom Fontana, who's really my mentor in TV writing, is a script that had Robin Williams playing the part of a, um, a tourist whose wife is killed in a, in a street robbery. and. Uh, he happens to, he, nobody notices that he's sitting in the middle of the squad room and he happens to hear the detectives talking about overtime, how much money they're going to make on this case because it's a red ball. It's, it's a tourist killed in a part of Baltimore where you know, tourists aren't allowed to be killed. It's a case that matters. And he listens to this, the, 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 the sort of the pitch-perfect cynicism of these detectives. And to me, why wouldn't a detective, you know, I'd, I'd heard them have that conversation hundreds of times. I mean, it's the way they talk. Um, to them, somebody else's tragedy is the day's work. And if, if you expect them to speak as if they're, they're personally connected to the, you know, that, it's not fair. It, they might as, you, know, you might as well ask funeral directors to, to actually grieve every time they stage a funeral. So I wrote that scene and it got in. And I remember watching it on TV and I thought to myself, nobody ever got this on, I, all those cop shows going back, you know, you never saw them actually go, I'm gonna make money off this case. Why is it every civilian says the same thing about a robbery? Three nondescript yos with a hole in the end of the barrel the size of the Fort McHenry Tunnel. I am telling you, I am going to rack up the overtime on this one. This funny to you? You'll be able to put news. It's a big joke, huh? Mr. Ellison. I want him off this case, okay? I don't want him anywhere near my family. Look, I'm sorry about your wife. I know this must be tough on you. But I'm the primary in this case. You don't have a choice here. I want to make a complaint. Want to make a complaint to his superior? Which guy is his superior? Okay, I want to start with you. I want to start now. I think it stayed with me as being um, a little bit honest and a little bit subversive that it got on the air. Now, Homicide was on NBC, what we call mm -hmm. main channel, mainstream television. Mm -hmm. But you took the other material when it was made television to HBO. Why? Uh, Tom Fontana had done a show called Oz. It was about a prison, um, and that was the first venture by HBO into drama. And what became apparent was that because the FCC uh, didn't have the same reign over, over premium cable, um, that 
you could tell a darker story. You could be more blunt about the world. You could and be more use honest. different language in doing so. Yeah, the language was sort of almost the easy part. The hard part was network television, every 13 minutes you would stop in your story so they could sell Lincoln Continentals and blue jeans and iPods or whatever they were selling at the time. Um, and uh, you couldn't you couldn't tell a, an aggressive political story honestly without in some way affirming for the outcome. You had to, you know, can we arrest somebody before that last commercial break? Can we, can we make people feel better about the world? Because if they don't feel better about the world, man, they're not buying the Lincoln and they're not buying the blue jeans. And we just need to make them feel better. You know, I didn't want to be in, in the entertainment industry. I mean... I found it fascinating. I, I, I very much admired a lot of the storytelling on uh, Homicide. But if, if all I was going to do was make a television show uh, to entertain people and make them, you know, reassure them without making an argument that they hadn't heard before, the, the, the reporter part of me wants to have that argument. Um, and there were things about the world that I wanted to argue, and it, there was no place for it. You know, the, the NBC execs, they would look at a dark episode of Homicide and they'd say, it was Tom's favorite phrase. He would say they would they would come to him and say, "But where are the victories?" And he'd put a you know hand on their shoulder and go, "The show's called Homicide." <laughs> but but you know they were serious. They they wanted everything to be affirmed about America, and so they would leave the show feeling good, and they wouldn't change the channel. And um, you know, how can you tell a grown-up story in in that kind of environment? And that's how the marriage between David Simon and HBO began. The Wire, with its intricate portrait of drugs and life on the streets in Baltimore, probably could never have lived on network television. This look like money, motherfucker. Money be green. Money feel like money. That shit look green to you? Got a dead fucking president on it. Man, I don't give a fuck about the president. That shit ain't money. He ain't no president. What you mean? Hamilton? He ain't no president. Nigga, is you crazy? Ain't no ugly-ass white man get his face on no legal motherfucking tender seppi president. We worked on that so hard. And there were so many writers. Uh, and, you know, I get to be David Simon because I'm like the showrunner, and I, and, I, and I say this in every interview. Um, and they always cut it, so maybe you'll, you'll do me better, <laughs> do me a solid here. But it was a writer's room, and, and we argued. And the best ideas, uh, I like to think, uh, got on the air, and a lot of the other ones became discards, and and we, sh you know, we used to finish every season exhausted with each other in, in that writers' room. But I think my favorite scenes—it's going to sound silly—but we worked on the drama and on the synthesis of tragedy and and narrative so hard, and we thought about everything, and and we controlled for what we were trying to do, and we executed pretty well. That stuff turned out as we intended and we were never surprised that it did. Comedy, comedy is ineffable. How you make, how you write something funny on the page and actually have it come out funny on the other end is, it's a dynamic of, it owes as much to the director and to the actors as to the page itself. When you had guys who could play drama, because The Wire required drama, but also could play comedy, like, uh, well we had, we had so many good comic actors on that show, but, you know, Wendell Pierce. You go to Edmondson, right? Yeah, he was ahead of me. I remember he was the first brother I ever seen play that sport with a stick. Uh, what's it called? Lacrosse, man. The show. Yeah. <laughs> I was all Metro Attack. Prep school boys used to pee themselves when they see the old bunk coming at them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> when that worked, you really felt like uh, you had pulled one out of the fire. Well, particularly when the, the overall narrative is so dark. Which is why you need the comedy even more. You know, right. it, it, if you could pull two or three laughs out of an hour of the wire, so that like, the, it, was, it was almost like you were letting the, the pressure out so that it doesn't feel hyperbolic. You know, these people are, are laughing the way human beings laugh. And there is a vernacular uh, of comedy no matter where you work in this world. If you're standing on a drug corner, there is humor to the drug corner. There's humor in a homicide unit. There's humor, there's humor at the morgue. Um, the first time I saw a guy wheeled into the morgue after somebody shouted, table for one, 
um, one of the deaners at the Maryland morgue, just like offhand, just table for one. And, and you know, it killed me. I mean, I, was, I, was in, I, I couldn't stop laughing, and yet I'm standing in a room surrounded by 25 dead people. Uh, Gene Weingarten, humor writer for the Washington Post, guy's won a couple Pulitzers, actually, uh, said to me, he said, why do people need to laugh? Why do, why do they tend towards humor? And I thought about it for a moment. I actually came up with the right answer, which impressed him, and he's not easily impressed. I said, because we all know we're going to die. And he said, that's it. That's it. I mean, you know, this is, we're all staring at the great void. So if we can laugh now over anything, we've stolen something back. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with David Simon. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is David Simon. The five seasons of The Wire were best viewed together as a unified narrative work. From the beginning, David Simon wanted to paint a complete picture of life on the margins of America and how it reverberates in politics. Learn from those mistakes. Criminal justice. Not guilty. And the media. It's a bad time for newspapers. As you all know, the news hole is shrinking as advertising dollars continue to decline. He centered the final season of The Wire in a newsroom. There will be a fresh round of buyouts. Chicago has given us some specific budgetary targets that will require some hard choices throughout the newsroom. We are, quite simply, going to have to find ways to do more with less. What was there in fiction that enabled you to do what journalism could not do? Uh, God, I, uh, I'm not sure that I had a plan for uh, becoming a television writer. I think, in fact, it happened because I had the opposite of a plan, which was um, to just learn this new skill set while I finished a second book and then go work at a better newspaper. <laughs> and by the time I got uh, lifted my head up, there were very few better newspapers. The newspaper industry was becoming vulnerable. Um, I, um, I, I don't want to get anyone's nose out of joint in journalism by saying that I think fiction has an advantage because there's something powerful about telling a story and having it be true, having all the names be true, having what happened be, uh, be your narrative focus. Um, you know, we, we, <laughs> we care about Anne Frank because she really lived. Because she right. she was up in that garret and, and and she really was Anne Frank and it really was her diary and and that's what gives that story that power, you know. Composite Anne Frank doesn't matter as much, so, you know, th the best I can say for fiction is that you get to shape an argument. The most honest thing I could say is maybe you get to you get to tell a narrative that is the equivalent of an op-ed piece. You know, it's definitely you're definitely picking and choosing what you want to say and how you want to structure it. But you get to make an argument uh, using fictional narrative. Well, most of us got into journalism, let me just speak for myself, yeah. for a lot of reasons, but not the least of those reasons being you wanted to be part of something bigger than yourself. You wanted to do something that, that counted. Yeah. Was it that way with you when you got into journalism? I don't think so. Um, I certainly wasn't... Uh, there was a little part of me that didn't want to go to the same job every day. And there was a little bit of a beauty to, especially when I was young and I was sort of a general assignment reporter, or even as a cop reporter, you know, today it was a four alarm fire, tomorrow something else will happen. And it won't be like you went to this office and sold the same crap to the same people over and over again. So there was a little bit of, I won't grow up. There was a little bit of Peter Pan to it. But I think the other reason I got into it was my father he was a frustrated newspaper man. He, he went to journalism school and he, um, right after the war my brother was born and, and he very quickly fell into a very good gig in public relations. And he never really had that period of working for a, a major metropolitan daily for a period of time. And nonetheless, the paper, the house was full of newspapers and magazines and we watched you guys in the six o'clock news every night. We argued about everything. And when, when 
he would read the paper, he would say, read the lead or read the nut graph. And so I kind of got sucked into the, into the idea, into a romanticized view of the newsroom that, of course, the moment that I hit a real newsroom, some of it existed, but most of it was, you know, Hildy Johnson had left the building, you know. <laughs> Um, I mean, we could at the Baltimore Sun, we couldn't even hold down a bar. You know how all newspaper, great newspapers had a bar that yep. was theirs? We didn't. We didn't. By then, everyone went home to their families, you know, and their mortgages. It was, it was a different era. But my dad sort of instilled that. So I'm not sure I thought about being part of anything bigger than, you know, uh, when I started, a byline running off the front metro above the fold was immortality. I covered the police beat in my hometown in Houston for five years. Didn't cover it for as long nor as uh, competently as you did, but learned a lot. And one of the things I believe I learned is how addictive it can be. This mm -hmm. is common with journalists on police beats. And you yourself stayed for 12 years. Mm -hmm. What is there about the police beat that makes it so addictive to journalists? Well, I didn't do the same thing for 12 years. I, I did cover crime and law enforcement stuff and the drug war, but I found a way of doing it a little bit differently so that it didn't feel like I was running in place. But there is something about it that is, um, it's very gratifying, it's very immediate. It's where you see the, uh, it's the first place I think you glimpse the contradictions in society about sort of what are the uh, ideals that we have and what are the um, presumptions we have. And then you see actually where the rubber hits the road and how stuff happens on the street and how it doesn't quite match up. So it's actually quite interesting. Um, I, I, I think in some ways, the joke about me at the Baltimore Sun was I never got promoted. That, 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 you know, what happened to me was somebody didn't grab hold of me and send me to cover the legislature when it was time. And so staying in one place for so long, it, you basically start seeing things you didn't see the first two or three years. You know, the first, first couple of years, um, drug war was in full flower when I was in Baltimore. And um, you would get called to these press conferences and they'd have the dope on the table and the guns and whatever they seized and it would, it would seem as if somebody had done something. Uh, and then after you covered the drug war a while, you'd see enough of these press conferences to know it had no relationship whatsoever to progress. It was just dope on the table. And let me just say to all others responsible for the drug trade's assault on the welfare of this city, a day like this is coming for you. I have seen what drugs have done to Baltimore. Drug dealers do not just destroy individuals, they destroy families. They destroy entire communities. Well, forgive the personal reference if you must, but the way I sometimes put it is that I'm paid, and what I like to do is be skeptical, but there's a difference between cynicism and skepticism. Yeah. That kind of skepticism is a, okay, this is what the police chief or the mayor says, now let me get on the phone and talk to a few people and find right. out what's really going on in there. Right. What was the, the old phrase that you know every city editor teaches you? Your, your second week is you know if your mother says she loves you, you know get two sources. No. Um, and and you know I, I think in some ways the greatest fear you have if you're a police reporter particularly is of being used by your sources rather than using them. You know we all know guys who became complete homers. You know older reporter been there a little too long. And they'd come to love the police for the, for the, for what was fed to them. You obviously love the newspaper business, still do. Yeah. And you, you were at the Baltimore Sun for a long time. Why leave it? Was oh. it just money? No, trying to meet the rent. Nothing to do with money. Buy a new car. <laughs> I had nothing to do with money. Um, I left it. Um, uh, I didn't walk from journalism. I was kind of spit out. Um, I was the third buyout from the Baltimore Sun, meaning there were two before me, one management and then another one full of reporters. And by then, I think you were, you were seeing the newspaper, my newspaper, which was probably one of the top 15 in the country at the time. You were seeing it shed about 150 people from its newsroom of about total, all editions, about 600 people. Um, now, here's the thing. This wasn't the period of the internet. This wasn't when the internet was forcing anyone's hand. I left in 1995. Uh, the internet was, was barely a whisper, if anything. Um, I left because Wall Street had found the newspaper industry, as it finds all industries eventually when they're profitable. And uh, the people who were running my newspaper, um, they'd gone to Wall Street. And, and they said to the analysts, um, what do we have to do to make your number? And uh, the analyst told them, well, we've looked at it, and if you put out 
shittier newspapers rather than good newspapers, you're going to make a lot more money. You know, this wasn't about something that was unprofitable and they were, you know, this was about can we make more money right now? We don't care about the future health of this industry. We don't care about newspaper and we don't care about what journalism provides to communities. What we care about is making money on the next quarterly report. And I looked around at what was happening and I said to myself, man, you know, what I loved about this place is disappearing. You know, somewhere 15 years down the road, I looked up and I'd been a, I'd been a television writer longer than I'd been a newspaper. I mean, it was time to admit to myself maybe I had a problem. <laughs> I wasn't going to get out of it. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with David Simon. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is David Simon. What you love doing is making the argument. What arguments? You make so many arguments, let's face it, with something that runs as long as the And I'll never get to enough of them, so (laughs) I'm trying my best. But what are your favorite arguments, or what do you think are the most important arguments you've made with your work? Well, on a policy basis, I think the wire specifically was an argument against the drug war. I think the drug war has been a a hideous tragedy, and I think it's become a a war on the poor, nothing more. I don't think it has any meaning whatsoever uh, other than as a means of um, marginalizing and now monetizing the poor. Um, And it's made us into the most incarcerative society in the history of of the world, in in mankind's history. so I'm glad we got that one out. I'm glad we pulled that one through the keyhole. But on a, on a sort of a greater socioeconomic level, um, the wire was about the America that we've now left behind. And ultimately, that question of, you know, if you don't need 10 or 15% of your population anymore, if those factories are all closed, if the, if the service economy we have doesn't need the most poorly educated and most poorly trained people that have, you know, that you, you've already consigned almost at birth to these, these places like West Baltimore or North Philadelphia. If you don't need them, what are you going to do? And what's, it, what's the future going to be like? And what kind of America are we, are we uh, accepting as, as, as quote unquote the best we can do? And that's what the, the wire was about, the America that got left behind and who these people are and what it means when capital triumphs unequivocally. In The Wire, David Simon didn't just portray the ills besetting American society. He explored ways the country could approach problems like the drug war with what he believed were more innovative solutions. Somewhere back in the 50s or 60s, there was a small moment of goddamn genius by some nameless smokehound who comes out to cut rate one day And on his way to the corner, he slips that just-bought pint of elderberry into a paper bag. A great moment of civic compromise. That small, wrinkle-ass paper bag allowed the corner boys to have their drink in peace, and it gave us permission to go and do police work. We had a fictional story where a police commander decided he was no longer going to lose his district to the drug war. He was going to marginalize the drug war and then use his police resources to go after actual crime. In Baltimore, while the rates of arrest for drugs went like this, the actual rates of arrest for crime, meaning murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, the felony crime went down. Now that, that's it seems counterintuitive because everyone has sold us the version of the crazed drug addict who commits 100 crimes a day in order to get his fix. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, we all were sold that bill of goods. But, you know, a lot of the people that I saw going up to the corner at Monroe and Fayette, they had jobs. You know, they worked at Lexington Market and they cut meat for six hours and then they took their cash and they went up to the corner and got high. Um, and a lot of people, uh, would make a car radio disappear, but they actually wouldn't commit a felony. They'd be terrified to commit a felony. Uh, break into your car, but they wouldn't put a gun in your face. And it was a relatively small number that were, you know, reached that level of socio-apathy where they were ready to commit a, commit a crime against a person. Um, and if that wasn't true, I probably wouldn't be here today, having spent a year on that corner. 
Um, but this is not what they, what they want to sell us. So the idea that if they fight this war, they'll make the city safer was, was, was a point of sales for the drug war. But in truth, what they did was they taught a generation of cops not to do police work. Because the easiest thing to do in Baltimore is to go up on a corner, grab a guy, go into his pockets, find, you know, turn the pockets inside out, probable cause doesn't have to exist, you, you know, you're loitering, bang, and make a drug arrest. You can make 30, 40, 50, 60 of them a month. And get a promotion. And get a promotion. The guy who does actual police work, if he's lucky, he makes one arrest for the month. He goes to court once, he gets paid for court pay once, he gets uh, no promotion. So they made the drug war um, the raison d'etre to be a cop. And so all of a sudden you had a generation of cops who couldn't write a search warrant to save their lives, who couldn't use informants and not be used by informants, who couldn't uh, testify in court without perjuring themselves because you know they, they had never actually worked probable cause, they had just grabbed guys on the street. And then when you really need them to like solve a murder um, or you need to stock your homicide unit with the cops who, who, who know their business, they're not around anymore. The drug war actually destroyed policing in, in Baltimore and in other cities. And urban police know that I'm telling the truth here and whenever I tell the story to cops from, whether from Chicago or New York, they nod their heads. Yeah, the stat game destroyed us. Well, I was going to ask you, how many policemen are going to write me after this program and say, listen, you put this guy on saying what's wrong with police work and that's not the way the real police world is. I'll, I will bet you get more letters from, 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 from cops who know their business and know police work who say, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. The drug war was, was bullshit and we lost ourselves in it and we accomplished nothing. And meanwhile, uh, what we didn't do was attend to actual crime. We didn't protect the real estate of our cities. And I know this is the case in Baltimore because you know, I still drink with those guys. You know, I'll still go to the FOP and, 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 and I've been hearing it for 15 years. The cops who really admire police work and, and got, took the job because they wanted to do police work. Um, the drug war was nothing but, but a distraction. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. Got the briefcase. It's on the game though, right? Today, The Wire is lauded as a legendary television series. But that wasn't always the case. When it premiered in 2002, critics weren't sure what to make of it, and viewers largely ignored it. The Sopranos was the big HBO hit at that time, racking up awards and recognition. The Wire was an afterthought, but no longer. With The Wire, it was more popular, much more popular after it went off the air yeah. than when it was on the air for, what, five years? Yeah. What does that tell us? It means word of mouth sometimes works if, if, if you, and I keep saying this to the HBO executives. Um, uh, in fact, I probably sound like a broken record. If you let the work get done and you let the story get told and you put it up on the shelf, uh, television is now more of a lending library than it is appointment television. Lending library, you mean things such as Netflix, you can... Watch it when you want to watch it. Watch it, you know, watch it when all the episodes are in. You know, nobody watched Treme, nobody watched Generation Kill, nobody watched The Wire, and yet they're watched now. This suggests there's a whole new business model I think taking so. form even as we speak. I hope so, because I've obviously proven beyond a shadow of a doubt I can't get people to watch anything I do while it's on the air. So either there's this new business model and it has credibility and sustainability, or eventually, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll be back on the rewrite desk somewhere because they'll figure out that. You know, it's a very interesting point. It may prove to be much more profitable than. Oh, it already it, has. It already, already has. has. It's sold about six, seven million units in um, in DVD now, and which basically covers its budget, covers the covers the uh, film budget. That market didn't actually exist when we began The Wire. Right. It existed afterwards. So DVDs now are not uh, are going to be a thing of the past fairly soon. It's about downloads now. It's about other platforms. and You, know, you can get stuff on your phone. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're all chasing the future here. But I, what I have to hope for is that content uh, will still have some value somewhere. And, and that's a scary thing because, uh, as I think pros 
literature has found out, the book publishing industry and newspapers have found out, um, it's, it's hard as hell to protect your copyright in the digital age. And so ultimately, if people download the stuff for free, I can't afford to make it. Um, you know, I, it, I make very cheap shows by HBO standards, but Let's 30 million is still, inexpensive as opposed to cheap. I make very inexpensive shows by, by <laughs> HBO standards, but you know, 30 million is still 30 million. And uh, if I can't provide some revenue stream to HBO, then, then I become impractical. Sent hook. Mayor elect is on deck. Please, back to what you're doing. I'm just a councilman here to observe. The Back Wire challenged many conventional wisdoms surrounding drugs and crime. One constant theme throughout the series was that numbers could lie, especially when it came to crime statistics, which Simon believes can be twisted by politicians and law enforcement. The fact is that homicides are off 14% of the Western this year. But I'm not going to stand here and take credit for that when all other UCR felonies are up. Why not, Major? A wise man once told me years ago when I wasn't even a sergeant that you should never take credit when the crime rate drops unless you want to take the blame when it rises. <laughs> an old city editor at Houston Chronicle said, you can know all the facts and still not know the truth. That's right. That's right. And anybody can array facts I mean, one of the things about The Wire that, that we were really trying to get at was the idea of, you know, stats can lie. Stats can mean various things that, that don't have any causal relationship. A decline in crime doesn't mean that actually crime is going down. And I got to see that sort of from the inside in terms of the police department and a little bit from the other city agencies. You would see that the very things that a guy was going to run on were all farcical. You know, and, and that, that ability to shape facts into, until they mean nothing has become endemic, I think, in our society. The word is they're looking for at least a 10-point increase from all city middle schools this time around. And it wasn't just crime stats. David Simon also leveled his attacks at test scores and school reform. I don't get it. All this so we score higher on the state tests? If we're teaching the kids the test questions, what is it assessing in them? Nothing. It assesses us. The test scores go up. They can say the schools are improving. The scores stay down. They can't. Juking the stats. Excuse me? Well, about statistics, you have people, still a lot of people, who say, wait a minute, that the statistics about children in school doing better as a result of more frequent testing have improved and they do tell us something. Well, in Baltimore, I watched them raise the test scores. And, and they, the place where they could really raise the test scores were third graders and fifth graders to an extent. After that, they had a nosedive. But they could point, if you were a politician or a school board president, you could point to the third grade test scores. Why? Because at that age, the streets and the culture in Baltimore that, has, uh, that, 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 that was so pressing on these kids in the Baltimore City Schools, um, it hasn't really taken its effect yet. You know, third grader is still a third grader. So they could teach to the test and literally you know, teach the structure of the test right up to almost teaching the answers. And that's all you really need to go from mayor to governor. Is you, just need, you just need one tagline that says, I improved you know, our test scores, we're up 25% among third graders and up, we're up 10% among fifth graders. And particularly if you can also say, and by the way, I reduced the crime figures. Right, the Baltimore miracle. Um, you know, the one thing he couldn't, uh, the fellow couldn't make go down was the murder rate because you can't hide the bodies. You can make an aggravated assault into a common assault. You can unfound a rape. You can uh, uh, make, an, make an armed robbery into a larceny. Uh, and all these things are done, and we're done aggressively. America is a wonderful country if you just, you know, just stay on, stay on that surface level. That theme, that America is not being truthful about its problems, runs through much of Simon's work. For example, he believes that while we like to talk about the importance of a thriving middle economic class, we have largely betrayed the values that made this country the envy of the world. We had the potential to be a great country for about half a century, maybe a little less. Uh, and it was at that moment where, uh, because of the Great Depression, 
there was a, a sense of balance between labor and capital. Uh, and there was a sense that neither side was going to win every argument, but the argument was going to itself uh, be a stimulus. And what's the difference between those days, let's say the 35, 40 year period after World War II and uh, today? We bought into the notion that profit and that capital has the answer to everything, that the market will out. Um, if you believe that profit is the functional metric for how to measure the health of your society, then you're going to get the society that we're building now, God help us. This is how an empire is eaten from within, and, and, and we're not even addressing ourselves to any of it. It's just every man for the lifeboat, get there first. And that sort of libertarian ethos of, you know, the markets will show us the way, um, I think it's destroying my country. Well, as I hear you speak, and in my mind's eye at least, when I see people in front of their television says, there are people who say, why the world? Dan Rather's talking to this guy, and the guy is a... Trotskyite. <laughs> Trotskyite, or, or at least a, a socialist, if not a communist. He's anti-capitalist, and he's profoundly pessimistic. I'm not an anti-capitalist. I believe capital, uh, capitalism is the only way uh, to generate mass wealth in the modern world. I think that argument was solved by the 20th century. Uh, what I don't mistake capitalism for is anything more than a tool to generate wealth. It's not a blueprint for how to build a just and viable society that is inclusive of everybody. For that, you need to marry it to the best socialistic impulses. I am also a socialist. Uh, and I say it in, in wonder, in astonishment, that it is that saying so is a derogatory term among many Americans. I think, I think they've utterly missed the boat about what the, what the American century was about. And the New Deal and the Great Society, uh, you can mock them all that you want, but ultimately they were the blueprints for bringing the most number of people into the economic model and creating what was the great engine of the 20th century, which was a working class that began the century on subsistence wages, that by the, uh, by the aftermath of World War II had so much discretionary income that they could buy not only what they needed, but a lot of crap they didn't need in selling that and in, in transforming the working class into a consumer class, we created an engine that drove our economy to incredible heights the, the world has never seen. We've been disassembling that class of people for 30 years now. So yes, I'm a capitalist. And to those who, hearing you talk that way, would say, there they go again. And not all these people would be editorial writers of the Wall Street Journal or in a certain section. But they of, would definitely be among or them. Or, the, or, or in the Republican <laughs> Party, though. They would say, and here's proof positive. Here's HBO. Here's the, the media, quote unquote, the left-wing liberal media is putting this guy on television with a five-year series to make this argument. Well, go get George Will. Have him write a series. What, what, do you, what can I tell you other than I believe what I believe? But ultimately, this is arguable on the facts, which is to say, if you look at the breadth of income disparity in this country now, it approaches levels not seen since the age of the robber barons. If you look at the buying power of the American family over the last 30 years, it has utterly stagnated and is now uh, retrenching. Uh, if you look at the levels of incarceration of our underclass, formerly our manufacturing class, they used to be in factories, now the factory they work in is called the prison industrial complex. And we have locked up so many Americans that we now have a gulag that is larger than that of any country on the face of the earth, including China. And I'm not saying per capita. I'm saying raw numbers. Right. China has jailed less people with its two, million, two billions than we've jailed with 300 million. And they are less violent than ever before. When I started as a police reporter, the, uh, the federal prisons held 34% violent offenders. That number is now 7%. We're locking up less violent people because of the drug war. The drug war is just a way to monetize the poor. You know, I mean, if we said let's kill the poor and just got around to killing the poor, we'd be more honest about what, what we've been engaged in for the last 30 years. Well, you've made the point repeatedly. You think the drug war has failed completely, I totally, know it's failed. absolutely. What would you do? Where do we need to move in your judgment? As I'd decriminalize it. I decriminalize. I wouldn't legalize it. I don't think you need to go that far, but I would decriminalize it in a heartbeat, and I would take all the money that you're heaving at interdiction and at incarceration, and I would I would take all of that resource, 
and I would put it into everything from job training to some urban equivalent of a CCC, uh, uh, of a kind of New Deal logic that says, let's turn this back. You'd certainly do less damage than you're doing to these communities, to these families, to these people. For no, and you're not achieving anything. If, it was, if what you were doing was draconian and you ended up showing where there were less drug corners or, or the rates of addiction were less or, the, or, or even the purity of heroin and cocaine had been diminished. But in fact, you, you can't show me any of that because it's had absolutely no effect on the problem. But it has manifested itself as a war on the underclass. David Simon's most recent series for HBO was called Treme, set in post-Katrina New Orleans. It looked at race, culture, and economic opportunity during the rebuilding of one of America's most cherished cities. May, which is your latest series, set in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You were so successful with Baltimore as the setting. Why move from Baltimore to New Orleans? New Orleans is a place where the, the structure of the city and the infrastructure is as damaged as any place in America. It's one of the worst-run cities, most violent. Uh, the school system's a mess. Um, you know, it, all the problems that were in the wire are evident in Treme. And yet, the one thing that New Orleans gets utterly right is culture. They've used their city to create some of the most, the greatest glories of American culture. You know, African-American music alone, if, if we didn't exist right now, if America was wiped off the face of the earth and all, all 300 million of us were gone, African-American music would be our legacy of the rest of mankind. You know, it, it went everywhere. It went around the globe 10 times over. And it couldn't have happened anywhere else but in about eight square blocks of New Orleans. And ultimately, New Orleans, when 80% when of it was wiped out uh, in, the, in, the, in the flood after Katrina, um, nothing worked for those people except their culture, except the great engine of New Orleans culture. People came back because they couldn't imagine living without the world they knew. And, and New Orleans has always been that way. It's always endured on the basis of what it creates. As much as you've written, did you write, are you writing for the present? Are you writing for posterity? Oh, God, that's an interesting question. I don't think anyone ever asked me that question. I feel like I'm always engaged in a present argument, but I do sort of pick projects based on what I think. I say I, but I really mean we, because I sort of work in this hive collective of, of, of filmmaking. Um, what we haven't addressed yet. Um, I, I, I live in great terror that I might begin to make the same show twice. Or, or, or write the same book twice, or, or, or waste my time saying something that I'd already said. Your work has been compared in a 21st century way <laughs> to Charles Dickens, in that you reflect, you report on the reality of what has become known as the Dickensian side of society, down below where they most mean, people They mean demimond. Yeah, I know what they mean. You ever think about Dickens? You think of yourself as a modern-day Dickens. The moment you stop laughing at that stuff, um, the, that's the moment you're you're in over your head and you're about to get you're, get, you're about to drown. Um, nobody gets to decide what their legacy is. You come to every story and you try to execute well, and nobody gets to decide. You know, first of all, the literary canon thus far includes books and only books, so. The idea that somebody is going to start including uh, film narrative, television narrative in, in the canon, that hasn't been decided yet. And the second thing is, um, nobody gets to decide um, 
if their crap doesn't stink. You know, that's, it's people a long time, you know, I don't know if the wire will, will listen, there's a part of me as just an, as an American that hopes that a lot of what the wire was saying is proven wrong, is proven hyperbolic and, and wrong. Because if, 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 if we got stuff right, we're in for a world of hurt going forward as a country. So I'm not, a, I'm not really looking to posterity in that way. Um, the, thing about, um, the thing about comparisons like that is that they're pretty facile. And they don't really attend to, um, to, to, to the limitations of, of the form that is television. You know, there's no interior dialectic as there is with a novel. I can't, I can't show you somebody thinking. I can try, but I mean, there's things that television can't do. And so I don't get my nose out of joint about it. And, and hopefully people writing novels don't get their, their nose out of joint. But whenever anybody makes those comparisons, you know, I, I'm not a Dickens fan. Uh, I don't, my stuff doesn't have old rich uncles coming in at the last minute to save the day. But, um, but I was a fan uh, in college of, of Balzac, uh, who sort of parsed the Paris of his day very carefully. And the idea of taking a city and making it a schematic for um, writing on, on social and economic and political issues is, I think, something that a lot of people have tried. Um, so, you, you know, having read Balzac, okay, you know, there is something there in terms of, of how the wire was laid out and, and, and what the ambitions of the piece might have been. But the one time where somebody came up and compared me to Balzac, you know, I made sure to say, did you just call me a ball sack? Because... <laughs> If you did, uh, you know. You and I got an issue. Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, you know, I acted like I didn't know who he was, you know, because the last thing you want to do is be caught even thinking for a moment that you got there. It's one thing to try, but if you're caught thinking for a moment that you got there and you, you've earned this um, comparison, you should be on your way down at that point. You should be punished for that. Yeah, David, thank yeah, you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.